Welcome to a new edition of the Global Radicals podcast series. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. Today's conversation and those of global fundraising ideas and inspiration is with Dr. Sien Mukaras, Director of AMRAN at the Afghan Mobile Reconstruction Association and Co-Chair of the Afghanistan Scaling Up Nutrition Civil Society Alliance. Welcome, Sied, and thank you for joining me today from Afghanistan. Can I ask you where you are right now? I'm in Kabul, and right now I'm talking to you from my home, and the uh, uh, situation is quite different than what we had in previous years. But right now I'm in, a, in my home, and let's see, let's, let's discuss how it goes. Because um, the one of the last time we talked, uh, maybe two years ago, when you were on the fundraising leadership program, was in 2021, uh, just as the uh, US were withdrawing from Afghanistan, and those were very different circumstances, right? True, true, true. A true catastrophe, and uh, even me, and I was actually running uh, and I was scared uh, kind of because I worked with the international community and at that time we thought as if it is something that they will come after us and they might hurt us or even prosecute us for working with the with the global communities. And this is why this was a grave situation not only for me but everybody who worked with the government and with the international community. So this was a, this was a tough situation. I remember you... When that happened, I mean, it, it's it's one of many challenges that you've faced in Afghanistan that the whole population is facing in Afghanistan. Can you tell me what what happened and what was your sort of response to this? Because I remember you you had to you had to take some drastic measures uh, to in terms of your your safety and security, which obviously came first. You see, the moment uh, we, we didn't realize that the country will collapse in seven days. We actually thought that there will be some time for us to leave the country or at least go to a much more secure place. Uh, the day it collapsed, trust me, I was in, in Kabul city and the fear, if you could see the fear of the people and the people uh, running and the, 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 the sadness, you could feel the sadness within the city. That, that, that's, that's way beyond my words to describe the situation. And I came to my home and when I sit with my family, even the young ones, my niece and my nephew, they were hiding in a room. And they were saying, are those people coming to kill us? Because there was a mindset. There was something that it was within the people thinking that it might affect us or hurt us. So we largely kept at home. We didn't go outside for a couple of days and even weeks and months. Because we didn't know there were extrajudicial killings. What happened was that there were so many groups among them because these people were some, not one people. There were de- different groups operating in different parts of the country. So when they united within the capital, we didn't know who was the real group. They also didn't know and they had no control over, the, over these groups because these were these groups were these pop- pocket resistance or pocket groups that were fighting. So it's quite challenging for even for them to centralize these uh, groups or to bring them onto a, 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 a common, organize them properly to safeguard or secure the, the because there were so many things that were happening and people were actually feeling it's, 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 it was a very painful situation and uh, you can imagine it the, 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 it has a huge impact on particularly on the children of course of course how are your chil- how are your children your nieces and nephews uh they're fine they're fine and uh, you see most of our families have left the country there were a couple of reasons yeah. and one reason would be that uh, it for the security for the future particularly girls are banned from education we predicted this situation and thirdly uh, the economic hardship. That is something that we predicted will come because the international community may not work or may not recognize the, the current government and it would be quite challenging for people to live and stay in and live a good life. So we predicted something. So many of our family left and you can't imagine, you know, they have built their homes, places and uh, they spend a lot of money, time and energy to build a house, to build a place and uh, selling every of your single stuff, your utensils, your carpet, your 
your bed and everything, and then you go and leave the country. Nobody wants to leave a country unless uh, they are compelled to do so. They, 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 these people run for their life. They, they, they run for the future of their children. Other than that, you know, the, the GDP, uh, the, the annual GDP for an Afghan was around $800. So people were happy with $800. It's still fine. They don't, they don't want to leave the country. But when that is gone, and when your future is gone, their security is high, it gets difficult. It gets difficult and challenging. So they are fine. They have most of them left. Good. And you, you stayed. What's behind that decision? Because you are, as you're an international per- person, you're, you're known mm-hmm. as an international person with international connections. You stayed and that's, that can't have been an easy decision. It's challenging and it's tough because I'm the only son of my family and my family lives in the United States. Except me, I'm living and uh, I'm thinking to stay and deliver. So the thing is that uh, uh, my mom always calls me and he, she's asking me continuously to leave the country. My father stayed with me at this age. My father stayed with me because of my security and they're pushing me to go to United States I have every of my documents and I once shared with you that I'm planning to leave. But uh, with time, I understood that, no, you don't need to leave because I had developed, uh, I just tell you a story. I had developed uh, uh, a way to just, uh, a habit to just go outside and see how does, how do people live? How do the different communities in Kabul live? So I was walking and I met two little girls and they were uh, around age 8 and 10, probably, most most probably around age and 10. I just asked them a random question because they were collecting waste and they, they sell them for 10 Afghanis, which is around 10 pennies or something a day, uh, UK pound. So I was talking to them and I asked them, what did you eat last night? To these two uh, girls, 8, 10. I found them very sharp because I, I realized... At this age, children shouldn't be very sharp, but I could understand the, the, the pressure and the, 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 I mean, they have been raised in a situation where they have to become smarter at this age. So I asked them, what, what did you eat our last night? They said that my father is a bricklayer and he, he earned around uh, 50 Afghani rupees, which is equivalent to uh, 60 penny in dollars or 50 pennies in UK pound. So they said that he earned 50 Afghanis uh, when he returned home last night. And uh, with that money, we couldn't do anything. But my mom said, let's not eat. All yeah. of us, we don't eat tonight. And we give this uh, 20 to 30 Afghani. We spend on our little new burn because there is nothing for them to uh, for him. So let's spend this 20 to 30 Afghani on them. And we, we, slept, uh, we slept without food. So then I asked, what did you eat in the breakfast? Just tea, nothing. Uh, green tea is something that's available. So I said, what did you eat uh, in, in lunchtime yesterday? He said, cauliflower, and it was very tasty. So I just, it just moved me, you know. When we bring food to our tables, there are kids that don't want to eat, but there are kids uh, who don't like to eat vegetables, don't like to eat these uh, vegetables, particularly like cauliflower, they don't like it. But for kids like this, they say, oh, it was very, very tasty for us and I love it. And see, these are the things that you see on a day-to-day basis. So this was something that actually motivated me and uh, and uh, I have I joined a group and I will later talk about that, which is related to their youths and they have come together to, to solve the problems of the Afghans. So I, I'm sitting there as well as the senior advisor of how we can actually do and transform the, 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 the community at least, or model a community at least. This is how things go here. And how is that? Yeah, how is that work going? So that work is actually that what, what I did when I joined this group was to actually, what I said in that group was in particular was that, see, let's find a way to meet at least the need of the people. This should be our priority. Let's strategize and let's uh, organize our work around this situation, around this. So what I suggested is that I develop a term of reference for them quickly and then I uh, separated uh, and profile the most professional people in the group and to every group I assigned a leader and then these groups are like self-working group and they are going to 
work on different uh, different different projects or different things. For example, one of the group uh, would be working on how to support the uh, local small enterprises to and connect them with the local market so that they could create some kind of a market or they could at least be able to sell their products in the local market and that could help them generate funds to to do other uh, we assigned a group that how could we support the younger generation particularly the girls how can we just channelize or support them to have, get scholarship and go through education and there are other uh, members that we group that we are working on the education on how we can use our existing resources online or anything that we could help to at least keep these girls educated because banning them or banning the half of population will be catastrophic for the country so this is how it's going currently it's in its initial stages but we still are working and through that we are also uh, getting funds uh, small small funds donations uh, through that because this community has many of the people in this community have left outside to from afghanistan so they are somehow connecting and donating uh, to to these people locally that's how it is going that was one of my questions is 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 around the diaspora funding is is that is that realistically one of your only opportunities to get funding in afghanistan from afghanis living overseas so in 2022, if you look at the statistics, uh, the remittance from overseas was around 100 million. And by 2020, by the end of 2022, it grew significantly. It reached to around 700 to 800 million. But one thing we have to understand is that these fundings are not in organized shape. They are coming from individual to individual. They are not coming in a more organized shape so that it could be invested and there should be a return that could benefit everyone. So the money is coming, but the problem is, or the challenge, it, it needs to be organized. The second uh, thing is that uh, the, there, there, is a, there are also problems with the funding and coming from, uh, from outside. Is the, uh, When I talk to people outside the country, they, they have a trust issue with the people, so they give it to their relatives or send it to their people and this is something, and more of the people who are here in Afghanistan have lacks the accessibility to this diaspora or connection. Uh, the second thing is this could be uh, this could be reduced to some kind of partnership or alliances. There are no some kind of partnership or alliances going on. Uh, there is also another challenge with the diaspora funding is that when I talk to these people, they target some specific community. Yeah. And they just say that you have to give it to that village, to that person. So that's another way of, another problem that it, but you see, we also have zakat fundings that are also coming from these diaspora. But that funding, the, zakat, the beauty of the zakat funding is, uh, you know, zakat funding is an obligatory payment by Muslims to even non-Muslims. It doesn't include Muslims. It includes Muslim and non-Muslim. So the beauty of the zakat is that you cannot limit it to the individual person or community. That doesn't. That's not how the zakat pays, and the person who's paying understands that. And it's now the holy month of of Ramadan right now. So it, when it comes to zakat, are you do you see an increase in funding coming to community organizations during this time? True. Uh, in uh, in Ramadan, uh, zakat uh, is the primary time. Most of the people give zakat at this time, but uh, you can give it throughout the year. It's not necessary that in particularly you give it in this year. So the global estimate, uh, I was let me just give you a global estimate according to the World Bank is around six hundred billion US dollar. But the thing is that twelve to fifteen billion dollar gets through an organized way. The rest goes through the through individuals, through people to people, to particular groups. You know, this is not organized. So you can, this is a huge thing. 600 billion can transform annually and it's growing. And only 15. Is and only 15 is organized, organized. And, 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 yeah. and condensed and, uh, okay. Yeah. But, but I, I guess people from overseas want to support their families 
who are who are who are in Afghanistan. They want to support their extended families. They want to support their community, and those direct funding is, is their way of doing that. Uh, true, zakat can come in a way that maybe that there are people who also supports their own family. But the thing is that that there are much richer Muslim countries. There are much Muslim richer Muslim people that are doing the large donations. So I was sitting with the Red Crescent and they said that we just received 5 million from Kuwait uh, in funding of Zakat. So this is something that, uh, yeah, there are people, but there are also other people. I can give you another example. So when I started uh, in, uh, approaching to individual donors right in 2022, before 2021, late 21 and 2022, before that, what we used to do is that uh, we, we, we mostly uh, were connected to institutional donors, not to the individual donors. And there was reason why we were doing so. So what I did actually, when I connected with people in US, our family members, I started with my family members. So m- my family members had developed a community of Muslims, particularly when it comes to zakat. So they have a huge community. For example, in US, they have 1,200 people in one community and 1200 in another community so how do they raise fund was that they were very good uh, they had some very good thing so they used to my for example my family members used to invest 600 dollars on certain food or catering thing they would open an event and many would come from 600 dollars they would uh, secure a fund of 2000 every month they were working for one to two days every week in their weekends so, uh, so in every month they used to make around eight thousand to nine thousand US dollars every month. So I'm still getting those funds on average between five thousand to nine thousand US dollars from United States alone. So that fund, which is coming in this much uh, amount, is d- distributed not only within the family members but outsiders as well. And now I've been recently talking to them that uh, we cannot continue like this. That I could continue to pay people and someday maybe these people will say, okay, uh, it's enough for them, they, let's move to some other people. They want, because this is the human behavior, uh, you have to look to, at the human behavior as well. So now I have been requesting them to send the money and what I will do is that I'll take a particular member of the family, invest in that person, and that person should be uh, should generate some kind of revenue and through this youth organization, what I'm planning is to help this person to grow its business, to improve its business. So when the money comes, we will only take 10 to 20 percent of the revenue, uh, sorry, of the profit. 80 percent goes back to the individual. With that 20 percent, we, we want to continue supporting others and continue supporting our initiatives. So it's an investment. It's sort of a a community investment scheme yeah. right? to, to build up yeah, yeah. build up different trades and economic activity within the community. That's sound, it's sort of stimulating that. Yeah, because sustainability is ultimately a challenge for many organizations. So I'm thinking in line. I have many other ideas and we are currently working. So sustainability, how, how will I make myself sustainable? Because I need to have certain teams and organize teams, and I need to continuously support other organizations. So one of the things that came to our mind was to do the investment in community and let them, and, and, and we don't just train them, we need to mentor them continuously. So there is a separate team sitting to support those initiatives. Yeah, I, I hear lots of complaints about how, how I, you know, I've done it myself, complained about how hard fundraising is. You know, and this is me sitting in the UK or here in New Zealand, and you know, and it's just I, I struggle to imagine how hard it is to uh, w- with everything else that's going on with the with the insecurity, with the uncertainty, to to even think about fundraising because it, it, in a sort of hierarchy of needs, it, it where does where does fundraising sit in the hierarchy of needs? Ah, uh, that that's that's a very good question, and uh, I want to start from something different so that I could give you a clear picture of what is going on and then we would come to the uh, specific question. See, uh, Afghanistan uh, had been much uh, stable now in terms of security. It's much stable now because those resistance are not here anymore. And 
you can see that many vloggers, the video loggers are coming to Afghanistan and they are freely moving across all the 34 provinces of Afghanistan. So no problems now. There is a peace, but there is a level of uncertainty. And this uncertainty affects the future of Afghanistan in terms of uh, uh, limitation in investment and that further exacerbates because no investor wants to invest in this kind of a scenario, a situation where there is peace, but there is uncertainty on the future of Afghanistan. So this further uh, 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 limits the uh, or exacerbates the existing economic uh, hardship. So if you see Afghanistan had been traditionally an aid-driven country and uh, aid was uh, around 18 billion dollar aid was provided annually to Afghanistan and it has been now reduced to 1 to 1.5 billion US dollar so 18 times it had been reduced so you can imagine how you can imagine is that one it not only affected the jobs sector it affected the economic activities but it affected the mindset of the people you know for 18 20 years you are continuously getting funds there are a lot of funds there are a lot of job so you were raised a generation is raised on that mindset that there is continuously funding you have jobs this is which which i call it as a fake thing in, in terms of economy it's not true economy it's just an aid it's not an economic thing so that changed the mindset of the people of in terms of thinking only to work under such a scenario, nobody worked for the economic activity to boost the development sector, to boost the manufacturing sector. Nobody thought because funding 18 billion was much more than uh, much more for Afghans, you know. So that significantly uh, affected the things. Now, please also understand the, the demographics of Afghanistan. 76% of the population is aged below 25, 76% of the population. Some 57% of the population is aged below 18. And some 45% of the population is aged below 15. So if, if, if you see that in Afghanistan, it's not that you start working right at the school level, at the college level. Traditionally, the culture is that you finish your university and you start working. Uh, before that, uh, your parents will take care of you. But after you finish your university, you start working. This is how the tradition works here in Afghanistan. So imagine when the 75 to 76% of the population is living below age 25. In that case, when they are living below age 25, you can see 25% uh, of the population lives uh, on the rest of the population. So the 25% of the population actually supports the rest of the 75% population and where in the 25% population half of them is women and currently these women are banned from working. So there is a 10 to 15% population supporting the rest of the population. It's quite difficult, quite difficult and challenging, you see. So at this point of time when, it, when I come to your fundraising question, see uh, the, for the 10% of the population the priority becomes uh, that they should meet their, their basic needs rather than uh, thinking or changing on transforming the community or, or bringing the projects that are uh, that will transform and improve the community. So that's 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 quite of a challenge. Uh, you see, uh, I can give you I, I just give you example of those two small girls. When if I talk to them about nutrition, they don't care. They said give us some basic food. So fundraising is difficultly a challenging uh, endeavor, but still. Uh, despite these challenges, there are individuals, there are organizations, there are people in this country that are still working and supporting the people, are promoting the development and making positive change in the country. So that, that's how it is going on at the moment. So in terms of hunger, I mean, how many, how many people within Afghanistan are hungry? Or... Uh, you see, the challenges have grown, uh, grown up significantly. You know that the country was significantly aided by the international communities and the donors. And post-COVID-19, that has also devastated the, the economy in Afghanistan and the war within Afghanistan have also affected the economy of Afghanistan. So right before the COVID, the situation was that 50% of the Afghan population was below the poverty line. 
but now it has raised to 97% according to the report by UNDP. 97% of, of Afghans live below the global poverty line. Yeah, the global poverty line. That's shocking. That's, that's pretty shocking. And even if you, in, in Kabul, what they have managed to do is that you won't see any, any beggar, hardly see any beggar. That is because the government has, if they see anybody who is begging, they will just tell him go home. They won't allow them to walk in the streets. But that is huge. If you talk to these people, if you go to and uh, see their places, they don't have a thing to eat at night. So this is how you define people by who are, who are living below the poverty line. So they don't have anything to eat at night. That's how the things are moving. And it's difficult. How does Afghanistan move forward? How, in the face of such extraordinary challenge... How do you stay motivated? How do you focus? What what future do you focus on that keeps you motivated and keeps you working? You see, Craig, there are a lot of problems here in this country, not uh, from the perspective that an organization or an individual work, but if I look at the micro level, the government uh, uh, has uh, set up a different uh, political landscape here. They have a completely different way of how to deal with the political, uh, with the economy, dealing with the international uh, communities. So that has put uh, us in a, a lot of uh, challenges. Uh, I would say that uh, it's not very easy because right from the, uh, from the fall of the Republic government, what happened was that I had worked with the international community. It was very difficult for me actually to, to, to keep myself open. I mean, I couldn't walk outside because for the fear of persecution, because there was some... Uh, uh, they, they, they didn't recognize those people who were working with the international community, who were part of the uh, international efforts. They were not recognizing these people. So we were actually running for our life. Yeah. And I remember because you had to, you had to, and you had to delete all of your social media profiles. You had to um, wipe your hard drives. Where, where, did, what, where did you go during that period? I have to, I left to a suburb area. Uh, so, because I, I I didn't live in capital of Kabul city for a while, I, I I chose to live in a suburb in a village type of setting, and uh, where there I feel that it's much secure when I when you live among them. So I left to a village and I was living there. So living in a such a place is a bit a bit challenging for me. You see, the working condition here is that uh, it has been further affected by the global relationship with the Taliban. They are, the government is not yet recognized. The foreign reserve is freezed. The country is sanctioned. There is no ec economic mm -hmm. activity and investment. There's no development work, I would say. So the country currently relies on the humanitarian efforts, and that is only in the food security and health sector. There's nothing more that is going on currently. So what, what people, how people are surviving is that they had some money in their banks and they are just taking those money out and are, are, and are selling their assets to sustain life. So it's, 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 it's very difficult. Personally, for me, you see, uh, about if I, if I say the mindset uh, of how I manage in such a situation and how do we start and working in such a scenario is quite challenging. You see... Uh, how I define is that there is an individual mindset or there is somebody uh, who wants to uh, stand in the face of problems and the face of challenges and he wants to make uh, work out to, in this kind of a scenario. But there is the other side which I call as the mindset of a society. So if, if you are an independent variable and you want to change the variable of the societies, uh, that's quite difficult and it's time consuming. It takes a lot of time and effort to transform a society with such a mindset where 3% of the population have at least some money and 97% have nothing. So given in this scenario where people want to meet their basic needs, I mean, they are looking for their basic needs. So how can you actually work with them to transform? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I've been engaged in talking to people and uh, you see, there was a young guy who was knocking. He was not knocking actually at my door, but I left early in the morning at seven o'clock and he was standing at my place. He was just collecting those litters. And I talked to him, why are you standing so early at, in front of my home? He said that I didn't go to home at night. I said, why? What happened? 
I said, you see, that traditionally men work in Afghan society. Women doesn't work, but they are mm-hmm. allowed to work. Afghan society doesn't stop women not to work. I said, why didn't you go to home? He said that, you see, yesterday my wife told me that bring some food to the kids. And uh, I said, okay, I'll bring. But yesterday I couldn't make even 30 Afghanis. That's very little. I, I couldn't make 30 Afghanis, which is equivalent to maybe 30 pennies. So uh, I had this shame, this discouragement of how will I face the family and I slept outside. So I handed over him some money and I said, go to your family and fake them. So this is the situation. And in this kind of situation, and you can see the communities who are living there. And if you are, if you try to engage them, uh, they just come up to you that uh, f- let us meet our basic need first. We can stand with you. We can work with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's quite challenging. You know, it's quite challenging. And this is something that you have to be motivated and you have to build some kind of a community around you to work for this greater cause. And, and that's, that's how and, and, and that's at the root of this, right? This is you're, you're sort of you're you're essentially cut off from resources from the rest of the world, and you only have your the community uh, to support each other. Is is there is there a really powerful sense of community uh, where you are? Uh, Craig, let's think more from a humanistic side. Even if the community stands with me, you see. Uh, if you are targeting a particular community and if you take the same statistics of the, that there are 97% people who are peer, poor, poor and you don't allow girls and women to work outside to contribute into the economic welfare of a family. So the whole burden, the financial burden lies on the shoulders of a man. So that man would be wandering and running for making their hands meet. It's quite challenging, actually, to, uh, to to talk to these people and to engage with people. But at the same time, I'm not saying that it's impossible. Being in this tough situation, there are ways to get out of this. At least uh, you can model a community where you can implement certain initiatives that can at least show them that, see, that our, our collective efforts can bring some kind of a change. So there is a hope here uh, and... Uh, I have my own ways. Uh, I have because necessity is the mother of invention. So I have some ways of how to deal with such a scenario, such a scenario. But I need some kickstarters. I need some support, and I'm looking um, and uh, forward to it of how I can actually do that. And and where 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 does your funding come from? Because I know you have your fa- You know, you you mentioned your your family do fundraisers every week. Uh, and send you funding but you know in the hierarchy of needs i guess putting your time and effort into fundraising is is just not an option when uh, so, so how do you prioritize it, you know what to do and where does funding and, and and the program delivery sit when you're in these circumstances uh craig uh, one thing i want to clear to you that i work in two organizations one is a local ngo and the other is the afghanistan civil society alliance i'm co-chairing a civil society alliance for food security and nutrition so what we do in past that most of these organizations local organizations relied on institutional donors because there was no need to go to the individual it takes much effort than going to institutional donors. So there were so many institutional donors. We had uh, the, 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 these program units which were looking uh, and securing these funds. And we mostly our funds came from USAID, GIZ, the UN agencies, and other international organizations. But since the fall of the, the, the government, you know, these, these funds have been limited. You see, on one hand, the, the situation, the global situation is changing. And the donor's attention has been changing. It's more going towards other countries like Ukraine. Ukraine, and yeah. At of the course. same time, yeah. the current government is not recognized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at the same time, you can see that uh, the country is not very flexible with the international communities, and uh, they don't stand with their values. So it puts us, uh, it puts the country and the people in much stress. So uh, for me. Uh, uh, currently, I understand that uh, funding from the family or through other group is not a viable option to carry out my activities. But I ha- at, th- at this point of time, 
the local funding is only in the food security and in the health sector. And now since the security has much improved, most of the organization implement these projects by themselves. So international organization have their own human resources to implement these programs. This has further affected the the the, the local organizations. Uh, that's how it is now. In what ways have the local organizations been affected by this? One is that uh, the fund has been reduced. Two, the projects are mostly implemented by the international organization itself. Three, the government and other agencies are not providing any grants anymore because the government doesn't work in that. They have reduced their expenditure because they also have no way to raise funds. Where do the money come from to them? They don't have any economic activities. So that's another way. How do they raise the taxes is mostly still around $1 billion is coming to Afghanistan annually. So these governments are taking taxes from them and they have some other resources to take to make around $1 billion, which is, which is not enough for the country. So I have certain ideas on how to diversify through local initiatives. And uh, there are ways actually to escape this uh, dependency on the the funding coming from outside the country or coming from the... Can you share those ideas? Yeah, why not? Uh, you see, one of the problems with the traditional early and local organization is the sustainability of their programs and projects. And the other problem with the same organization is uh, that they are, they are tied to the other's strategic objectives. I mean, they get these restrictive funds and they cannot run their own programs and projects. Yeah. So for me, uh, because for the last one and a half year, I kept very silent due to the security concern personally for myself since I had worked with the U.S. and the other international community. So in such a scenario, uh, what I'm seeing is this, this government wants to work. They want to work. Let, let us be honest. If I am saying one, one face, let's say, let us also look at the other end. The current government wants to work. And what I'm seeing is that they are giving 2,000 meters square land for 500 Afghani per month, per year. So per annum, 500 Afghani is 5 pounds. So for 5 pounds, they are giving you 2,000 meters square of agriculture land on a lease of 30 years. So that's a significantly little amount of money. So I'm thinking to, to, to get around 500,000 square meter of land, which is uh, a huge place. And I want to launch uh, an initiative where we will actually have developed these uh, nurseries, these gardens, these vegetables and fruit. And we will engage these community members. It could be a source of nutrition for them, but we will also engage the community to take these plants or herbs and plant them in their own vicinities, for example, the fruits or the other plants that they want to benefit from that. And at the same time, this agricultural land could provide us as a source of income to sustain our activities. I also want to, to now behave in a different way for my organization. I want to establish certain local enterprises, particularly for women who cannot go outside from their home, so through these social enterprises, what they are missing and what the problem has traditionally had been in funding is that they used to give these enterprises these funds, but after a few years or a few months, these enterprises were dissolved. So Is that what, microfinance? Uh, yeah, micro, through microfinance, yeah. So what, what I want to do is that uh, I want to do it in, as an investment and not a loan. So if, I, if I'm earning through the agriculture rent, I want to reinvest in the in the social enterprises uh, on a condition that 70% uh, of the earnings will go to the enterprise, 30% will go back to the organization. And um, the organization in return will also uh, look over uh, the enterprise in terms of the technical or market linkages are creating profit for them. So this is the, this is a, the other way that I'm looking um, forward is to find global alliances and partnership with organization outside the country for zakat funding and at the same time i'm looking to because in most of the programs i have worked to empower women or uh, the, the youth of afghanistan so i'm looking more on how to connect for uh, online jobs 
So I will be looking to connect these people for online jobs and uh, that I will be, I hope that I will be able to, to connect with these companies and, uh, and I hope that I could create the employment opportunities for these people. So in all of these ideas that I, I, I'm thinking to have, I will have a diverse or a different way to have these resources for myself. Mm. for the organization so yeah, so moving moving to a much more sort of sustainable model i guess after yes becoming so reliant on institutional funding it, it makes sense to mm-hmm. not be able to trust that in the future so uh, building more um sort of sustainable uh, social enterprise models of funding what size of funding do you need to do this that's a very good question. For a uh, 500,000 meters square, uh, uh, let me just explain you in the uh, the Afghanistan measure. So 2,000 meters square land is equal to one jirib. One jirib is a is a size of measurement of land. So one jirib is equal to 2,000 meters square. Okay. So I want to have the 500 uh, 500 jiribs of land. So for this, I need two things actually. One is the technical uh, aspect. I need a technical people who are very well versed in the agriculture sector who could help me or who could help the team here in Afghanistan in the agriculture sector and help us to 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 benefit more from this land initially i think that we don't need much of these uh, a lot of these funding but we had uh, an internal estimation of around 60 to 70,000 70, US dollars initially we required to actually uh, transform this land into a uh, in a sustainable way that could provide the required funds to the organization. I think that's not that ma- a lot of money. And how many people and families, community size, would that land serve sustainably? I think uh, five hundred GDP is pretty a lot of uh, uh, amount of uh, land. And I can uh, tell you that it can support more than 500 to 1,000 families. And uh, in the long run, if we give them these required plants and uh, required uh, technical resources, I think they can grow these uh, these fruits or these vegetables in their own vicinity as well. Craig, uh, I want to tell you one uh, interesting story uh, about my village. You know, in our village, I remember, and my father used to tell me, and I also remember from my very early age, we used to grow these uh, fruits, we used to grow these vegetables, and if anybody wants to come and wants to take these fruits, these vegetables, traditionally we never tell them, don't take it. Take it, because you need it. And this had been not only for us, but for the entire communities living in that area, in that province. So that has slowly gone away. So now you cannot touch anybody's uh, fruits or vegetables. I want to revive this whole thing again. You can touch you if you need you take it. So I think the project can support uh, more than uh, uh, seven hundred to uh, one thousand families directly. And if we were able to scale up from the same land, I think it could support the thousands of people in the long run. And is there is there political will there to do something like this from the from the Taliban administration? Obviously, because there is nothing wrong with this kind of a model. I have thought this and adopted it based on considering the political environment, and they are giving us these lands. So people mostly are thinking of making profits, but what I'm thinking is to engage the community and create a model to these people, to the current government and to others that see how we can transform a community. And not only you can earn some money to run your own operations, to, to, to manage your own salaries, but at the same time, you are transforming a whole community. And, and, and I can engage these youths for free to work with us, but because they will be benefit sometime, these volunteers, they will be benefiting in one way or the other. And if, and if I'm saying, if everything goes well, what happen, What will happen in the long run? If everything goes well and I can model it effectively, then I can take the resources of the government. I can take these physical resources, these much bigger machineries for free. I can show them, see how it has affected the local economy. And this is how you can do it uh, to other, other communities. And perhaps we, can, we, could, we could make a greater change. 
we just need to show the value. You see, you need just to show the value. I know. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm thinking of creating how to create the required value. That's the that's the thing. And and that's fundamental, right? Yes. When it when it whether it's whether it's speaking to a funder, whether it's speaking to any sort of investor, is 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 True. is presenting True. that impact and value. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear other global perspectives on fundraising and leadership in the nonprofit sector, then please do subscribe using the links in the show notes. If you want to find out more about our work, please do visit our website, fundraisingradicals.com. Now, back to the conversation. When you're faced with a target of sixty to $70,000 in the current circumstances you are, what What's your first instinct when it comes to fundraising? How how will you get this money? Where does your brain go first? Uh, it's a very good question. And uh, for me, the first thing, 60,000, 70,000 is a lot of money. And it's not very easy to convince people to actually raise these funds. But the first thing that goes into my mind is, again, to find these uh, donors. So I have to pitch my model or my idea to to different uh, people, to different uh, organizations. So I have started it uh, with from my family, from my relatives, from my friends. I have pitched this model. And little by little, at least something would come and we can make a separate account for that. At the same time, I have also mapped... Uh, certain donors because this is a recent development i have also mapped this and uh, i have written to fao uh, the head of the fao in uh, in kabul afghanistan that i want to meet him in person and i want to discuss uh, a model with him and and, and want to seek his uh, attention and his technical resources because these people have these technical resources mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. for 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 it to happen uh, the first thing is for me to pitch it like just like a businessman I have to pitch this model. I have to use the team resources, use the power of my team, the influence, the network of my teams to uh, get to know these people. And once I know, I have to pitch them. And it, it might take some time to collect this entire sixty to seventy thousand dollars. And 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 you think that the UN, the FAO, um, is is probably your most likely funder for this project, and and you have the access, and you're able to have those uh, those conversations directly. I'm a member of the Food Security and Agriculture Cluster. The organization is actually a member. I can visit. I can. I can meet them easily. Uh, I doubt that they would fund me directly uh, because uh, they may have their own restrictions due to the these limitations they have within the organization. Mm-hmm. But at least they can help me to give me certain ideas and at least help me to mobilize their existing resources, maybe human resources or any other resources, to help me capitalize or help me to uh, bring this program or project to a reality. So it's not more about the money. It's also about the other resources that they, are, they have in hand. Uh, so of how can I benefit from their existing programs? So maybe the community that I will start, maybe they have some existing programs, so I'll be looking forward of how the, I can use their resources from their existing programs. So there will be one way or another that I can use their resources into the projects. Your sheer determination is coming through, yeah, <laughs> shining through, Ziad. Yeah. Um, the fact that you are there and, and, and still doing this work. And mm. at what point, because you know, you've, you've mentioned that you've, may be leaving Afghanistan um, because of the challenges of the circumstances. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What's driving that decision and and how will you leave and when? Uh, Craig, uh, you see those thoughts came when I was uh, facing certain challenges in Afghanistan because twice our office was raided and uh, some of our employees were beaten, some were maligned that we are supporting the insurgency against them which was not true. We don't have any political affiliations throughout the previous government and even now. But there was one way that uh, the other that we were not allowed to work. And even at the at the provincial level, some of our staffs were uh, stopped and they were ridiculed and they were threatened not to work again. 
So these were the situation when these were the early situation, as I said to you mm -hmm. earlier, that you see there were so many groups among them, and to make them uh, to to, yeah. to centralize them under one leadership is was a difficult job for them. So we don't know exactly who was this group, who were these group, who are these people. So it's now getting they are now consolidating their power, and it's getting more centralized. Now you are realizing that it, the things are getting uh, stable day by day. So, yes, I thought to leave the country for several reasons because I felt that there's that I can no, no longer work because it's a direct threat when somebody attacks or raids your office of course, once of or twice and they stop and ridicule and threats your uh, employee. So in that thought, in that line of thinking, I was feeling that I need to leave the country and I cannot do anything if I don't leave the mm -hmm. country. But since you see... Even if I leave the country, which I don't think I will be leaving it uh, uh, in a point right now, at this point of time, because I feel the country is stabling now. Even my family is now saying that, yeah, if you want to move ahead, uh, you can move ahead. So if the country is stabilizing, I think we have the required resources to develop this country or to, to develop the, the, the community. Only and only if there is a security of oneself. So we were discussing this within our organization that we don't engage any, in any kind of political or any anything that are against them. We are purely here to support our community. And this is what we are. And this is how we had been practices all this long. So we are purely focusing on how to transform the, the miserable life to a happy life. So our whole, our sole idea at the moment is to transform a community or model a community. Going abroad for a brief time can help me to connect with the networks, to connect with the people, to create opportunities and direct them those opportunities back to Afghanistan. But for the moment, I'm thinking to realize this opportunity of uh, working and on this model. So I'll be here for some time here, for very long probably, for two, three years, four and see how this results, the whole thing. Of course. And, and the situation is so dynamic, right? I guess it's very difficult to sort of make long-term decisions or, or uh, everything true. is changing constantly. Very true, very true. But how do you look after yourself? How do you look after yourself? Because I, <laughs> I feel like this, this, this must be the, the levels of stress, you, your staff, your team, the people around you, your friends, your, the community are experiencing just are relentless and yeah, true how do you how do you keep yourselves well and continue Greg, uh, uh, for the past one and a half year uh, or for the past one year i remained mostly at home i occasionally visited my office i didn't go regularly because i i, I still didn't understand them but uh, now uh, I'm feeling that there is a relative stability and there is a relative tolerance towards these uh, organizations. They have a mindset and I needed to understand their mindset, their values. Uh, they are Afghans, but you see, I, I, I couldn't figure out because they are in total, they are 80,000 people and they have a kind of a mindset they have brought up in a much different way. They had been kept away from the past developments, past education systems. So they have a traditional way of thinking and working. So in the last one and a half year, what I learned is that uh, these people are humans and you can work with them. They have a separate way of thinking. They have a separate, they are, they are valuing things differently. So if you understand them and you approach them and you sing their songs in a way that you want to, uh, to conquer your uh, achievements, I think this is the only way to move forward. Uh, I don't talk much of the politics. I don't talk against them. I don't engage in any activity that, that I feel that they may not like it. So I'm solely thinking and uh, working in a way to, to help these people. So I think that won't be much challenge uh, for the now, but I still understand that if we work in certain remote areas, we may have certain problems with them because now they have formed an organized government and there are some personal interest of the individual. So maybe the central government is one, one thing, the provincial government is doing 
are managing things in a different way. They have a decentralized type of a government. But navigating this is incredibly challenging. What what are the you, you talked about? You know these these are people, these are humans, and 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 you can work with them. What are the areas of of common interest that where you think you can work um, to to benefit and improve the lives of people living in the community? I mean, they are these are the people. They are also looking to serve the community. They have uh, they they want to support the community. But the problem with them is that they have uh, no good planning. They don't have a good understanding of the economics. They don't have a good understanding of how the country should be run. But they do have a, a good quality, and that is of a social cohesion. They are very good implementers. Once you know, you know, once they know that this is the project that they are going to benefit them, they are very good in an implementation. Okay. So the common things between us and them, this is a very good question. The common thing and between us and them is to serve the community, to take these people out of the poverty. They want to do it, but they cannot do it because they don't have a very good system in place, a conscious system, a system of value in place that could serve this community. I can give you a very good example. Yeah, please. Uh, they are investing in projects yeah, they are investing in projects and programs that are not giving them the required return on investment for the priorities that they should take are considered for now. For example, they are working on investment on project just to show to people, see, we have made this road, we have asphalted this road, we have made that square intersection beautiful, but they are not investing on those core projects which can elevate the life of the people. So there are other projects uh, which are multi-million or billion dollar projects. They are taking this money to those projects which of which benefit will be realized in 15 years. They don't understand that you have to have short-term objective and the long-term objectives. So I think uh, the common thing is to, to take these people out of the poverty that if you set such kind of a goals that you you're, you're helping these people uh, to meet their needs, whether it's food security, nutritional health, I think there, uh, I think there won't be an issue for them. They would, they would love to boast about it. That see, we have invested in these people, we have given lands to these people, and they are they're coming and supporting the community. So I think we have a, a commonality in this way. Okay, where where is the funding coming from for the infrastructure investment? For the, for the roads and, and for the parks, etc. Where where is that coming from? Is that coming from overseas? Actually, actually, the Taliban's are much better than the previous government in terms of tax, taxations. They are taxing ah, yeah. everything. And they are doing so much. They have brought so much taxes uh, that you can't imagine. And this is one of their bigger source. Uh, of uh, of money and at the same time the international fund uh, community provides one one to 1.5 billion dollars that could be also a source of stabilizing the afghani currency now they don't understand this point that in the long run if you don't create employment opportunities the the shops the people they won't have their salaries, the shop won't have their revenues, yeah. the companies, the organization won't have, and they won't be able to pay the taxes. So the long-term game is a difficult one for them. And the short-term, they are, they, are, they, are, they are getting this money and investing them. Yeah, it's, it's such a, yeah. I, I mean, my, my mind is blown by, by, by this, and just in, just in terms of the, the, the sheer challenge ahead. And, and I, I, it, it's so so far away from the daily challenges that 99.9% of the fundraisers in the world face. It's, yeah, and, and it, that, I think this is, yeah, it, in that, just in that sense, it sort of blows my mind. <laughs> and, but, but I just, I have nothing but admiration for you and, and just really your ability and your grit and determination sticking, sticking with your community and, and, and committing yourself to this. You, you talked about duty you have a you feel like you have a duty to your community true where does that come from i think uh, there are two ways and this is a question that i have been also proposing to many of my foreign friends when they become a volunteer for our organization so i always put them a question why do you want to help me so this is my first question to you why do you want to help me mm-hmm. 
See, irrespective of any religion or any race or any anyone, the biggest happiness is when you help people. No matter if you are American, you are of any religion, when you help people, your heart finds the peace and the rest you are looking for. For me, one of the biggest motivation, honestly, for me would be my religion because it constantly reminds me of the favors that I have and it constantly reminds me of the sufferings of the people that I see. So if you, if, if you look at these people and then you understand that their shared misery of them is because of those little knowledge they have or, or of those little resources they have and that there is a person who understands all of these things and, and he doesn't help. Mm-hmm. So for me, I have those required knowledge and skills. And I know how to transform these communities or make the life of these people better with the resources at least we have in our hand. So the motivation for me is when I look at these people and look at these sufferings, I mean, I cannot hold myself to not support these people in one way or the other. Does this also come from your medical training as well? Because you were you trained as a, a doctor. Was it in China you did your training and as a surgeon? I, I did my studies in China and then I practiced in Pakistan for my medical practices. And uh, I think you have found a very good connect- connection between my what I do and what I practice and what I learned. True, it's, it's, it's very honest. And I worked in a pediatric department and child department. And uh, you see, most of our people are very, very young. And I have, I have shared the statistics with you. And uh, I have been working traditionally in the pediatrics department. I have looked at these children when they were crying. And it has a very bad effect. And one of the reasons that I, that, that, that I couldn't uh, stand uh, for them was that as a doctor, I, couldn't, I could only help these patients. But, but as a person working in an organization, I wanted to work for the entire community at a time so that my, uh, the value I want to add is to the entire community, to the country, not to an individual or addressing a simple patient where others can do. So I looked into my... Uh, skills and I looked into my uh, motivations that I can actually transform of healthy people in, in another way, which is through these works that I do for the community. It's incredible. Sid, I, I think you're uh, amazing and uh, such a sort of humbling. Every conversation I have with you is deeply humbling. And I, I, I whenever I'm, I find fundraising difficult or anything difficult, I think of our conversations and and the things that we we talk about, and it's been such a privilege to sort of to to be there and to to have had these conversations with you over the years um, through some really challenging circumstances, um, and, and and I've learned so much from you, probably more than you have learned from me, <laughs> to be honest. No, no, no. Uh, and I have nothing but gratitude towards you. Uh, Thank you, Craig. And honestly, uh, what you have taught is a very different thing because mostly we relied on the institutional donors. But what you taught is that of the most important thing is that in your courses, in your program is about that you are dealing with individuals, with the humans, and how you can add or bring those values and uh, motivate these people to help you to uh, support your cause. I think this is the biggest gift that you have given to the entire of, uh, team to actually go for the individual donors, goes for these groups and and share your stories and make them uh, help you or support you, your cause. I think that was that is such a great uh, work that the fundraisers do and uh, teach to others. Thank you so much, Syed. It's, it's, as I said, it's, it's, it's always an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much also for taking the time. And I know that it's uh, it's not easy with the connectivity and uh, and access to the internet at the moment, but we we massively appreciate it. and I, and I'm sure that many people who who hear this will be inspired and humbled by you, your experience, and your stories. So thank you so much for so generously sharing them. Most welcome, most welcome. Thank you so much, and thank you for the time and uh, raising my voice to the global people. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, 
what they have they should thank and uh, they should continue supporting the people around themselves to make their life thank you siad today's conversation has been a really special one for me it has been my privilege and one of the most humbling experiences of my career to have worked along siad for the past 4 years this is another interview that really needs no more words from me You can help us share Sied's stories and those of all our podcast guests with more people worldwide just by spending a moment to rate the podcast on the platform of your choice whether Apple, Spotify or Google. And you can find out more about our work at fundraisingradicals.com. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Fundraising Radicals podcast and that this conversation has challenged informed and maybe even inspired you and your fundraising leadership practice. Please do check out the show notes, subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice, and do visit fundraisingradicals.com to find out all the ways in which we're working to empower, equip and engage fundraisers all over the world. Thank you.